You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-hosts and friends, uh, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And our special guest today is my partner, Dr. George Hill, who's also from Nashville Fertility Center. Today, we're going to be discussing how to navigate your finances when you're faced with infertility. And so, but before we get started, um, I just wanted to check in with you guys and see how you're doing. Uh, you know, with this COVID-19 crisis, I've noticed that alcohol sales have gone up. And I thought mm-hmm. it would be really interesting to talk to George about wine because he is the resident wine connoisseur, at, certainly at Nashville Fertility Center. So George, tell me kind of what your favorite wine is. And you have kind of an interesting story to talk about too. Well, right now, probably anything Italian, since I've been eating a lot of Italian food carryout for the past few <laughs> weeks. <laughs> so any of those are certainly good. Uh, Brunellas or um, even some Chiantis. But uh, actually, it's just, you know, it's important to find out what you like with the food that you're having. And I generally tell people, um, get away from all the pretenses about wine. Just uh, go with what you like. But uh, mainly, it's just matching it with food. So how do you, I mean, my MO when I go to pick out wine is I have an amazing track record for picking out grape juice and vinegar. Um, (laughs) And that may or may not be related to the fact that when I go to pick it out, the only thing I know to look at is the label, which has absolutely nothing to do how it tastes. And I know kind of the, the general varietals, if I'm using the technical term, um, I like. You, you but, sound like you really know about this stuff, Carrie. Well, yeah, because, well, you know, if you get the Because she the picks pink out label, wine by the pretty label. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Like, how do you get away from label picking? Well, you know what? You know, you just try things and see what you like. And when you find something you like, uh, think about what it is about that wine that you like. What was the food that you had with it? Or were you just sipping it on the on the back porch in the afternoon, relaxing after a day at work. Um, So think about what it is you're going to have it with or when you're going to have it. I would also, if you're unfamiliar with wines, this is the great time to take advantage of those guys that work in the wine stores. Most of those people are very knowledgeable. um, And, you know, they can tell you the areas they come from, what foods those wines would go with. Uh, and if they get an idea of what your tastes are, they can really point you in the right direction. So I'd always take advantage of those people and let them help you pick wines. But the, the biggest thing is just if you find a wine that you like, um, then keep that in mind and then look at where that came from, what type of wine that was, what grape that was, and then use that as a way to go find something different. The other thing I like to do is I have certain wines in my cellar. Uh, because you get those in the wine store. If you go to restaurants, you're probably going to get a different wine list because most uh, vintners don't like to have um, the wine that they're putting in restaurants in the stores, and most restaurants don't like that either. So you're going to find different wines in restaurants, and that's another place to really explore and see what you like. 
I have to say it just kills me when I go to a restaurant and I see a bottle of wine that I buy for myself and it's four times the price is what I buy at home. And I'm like, but I like it so much, but am I really going to pay four times as much for it? It's, it's kind of, I, I like to be more adventurous when I go out just because I don't want, I know it's still four times what it would be if I went elsewhere. But if I already know the price, it, it, it hurts a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's why restaurants prefer not to have wines on their wine list that are not in the store. <laughs> that makes sense. That's really smart. So, so George, what wine would you sip on your back porch when you got home from work? Oh, I, I usually would be a white burgundy or Chardonnay or sometimes maybe a Pinot Blanc or... Wait, isn't a white burgundy an oxymoron? Like I always thought the <laughs> burgundies were the deep reds and now you say white burgundy with it. And so I'm imagining a rosé because that's the happy medium between the two. Actually, you know, remember burgundy is just the region of France. So they grow white and red grapes Not there. the color, Carrie. All right, fine. <laughs> there we go. So... White Burgundies are just French Chardonnays from Burgundy. And oh. the red Burgundies oh. are Pinot Noirs. So, And to think, we, we thought we were going to learn about fertility today. We actually learned about wine today. So this I think cool. we need a field trip to George's house personally. <laughs> I think we, yeah, it's George's wine cellar. We'll have to add in about George's wine cellar and the unique touch that it has. Tell us about your wine cellar, George. Yeah, I built it as a project with my kids. It took me uh, six months. I started the day after Christmas in 1999 and finished on Father's Day in 2000. So. Aww. Yeah, so, okay, trip to Nashville to George's wine cellar, guys. <laughs> my daughter and I went to Home Depot to learn how to lay tile, and she helped me lay the tile. My son helped me do all the woodwork, and uh, oh, my youngest daughter just supervised. Very cool. <laughs> well, I hate to break up the conversation on wine, but... Um, I think <laughs> wine is super relevant to fertility, because how many women do you think have sat around with a big glass of wine that first day that period comes when they do not want to see it? <laughs> probably, probably a lot. <laughs> Well, some of our listeners have sent some questions online, and we want to make sure we get to those. So one of the first questions that we had, and this really pertains to our topic today about finances, the listener said, what options are given for people having an issue with conception if they don't have insurance? So George, take it away. Tell us what you think. Well, the first thing I would tell those patients is you've got to be your own best advocate. Um, just because your third-party payer or the insurance company has said that you don't have coverage, I wouldn't take that as the absolute truth. The first thing I would do is look on their website or look in your policy description and make sure that what you've been told is actually true. Um, and my experience is that in the past, insurance companies were very vague about whether they covered infertility, but I think now... Uh, they're much more specific because they've been questioned a lot along the way. And so what we will typically see is that some patients have diagnostic coverage, which means they have coverage for their testing to try to establish the diagnosis. Um, and that's certainly better than having no coverage at all because that might get you at least through the evaluation phase and find out what's going on. Others may have coverage that includes uh, the evaluation and maybe some treatment, but they don't cover in vitro fertilization. And that's always nice to know because that may help determine the route that you go. Although I always hate to make decisions based on what insurance a patient has. And then um, the third category would be someone who has coverage that includes diagnostic testing, initial treatment, as well as in vitro fertilization. Um, 
Now, the other thing you have to keep in mind is sometimes there are limitations on what those coverages are, um, and you want to know that. But if you get into a situation where you absolutely have no coverage, then that's the point you want to try to work with your physician and their center uh, and see what type of options they have. Most people have um, discounts from their fee-for-service for patients who are paying cash and things like that. But again, I would say, you know, before you give up on your third-party coverage, there are a lot of things that cause infertility. It's not just I can't get pregnant. You may have endometriosis. You may have significant pain with your periods, pain with intercourse. You may have pain throughout the month. Those are medical problems that need to be evaluated. You may have a big ovarian cyst like an endometrioma. Those are areas that may be impacting your fertility, but those are significant medical problems that need to be addressed, and those should be covered outside of what would be a basic infertility policy. So if I can interrupt for just a second, mm-hmm. George, one of the, the things that drives our patients and in, in our staff too, honestly, in our billing office, Batty, is when going back to one of the first things that you said of be your own best advocate. So the patient calls the insurance company and then, and they get told, oh yeah, you have coverage for X, Y, and Z. And when we verify benefits on, on the office side, we're like, no, they're telling us you don't have benefits for everything. And then the patient gets mad at us when it's just, they're oftentimes, I think they come across a representative who is either not super skilled or um, read it wrong or is trying to appease them or, or what have you. But how would you suggest a patient advocate for themselves in that kind of scenario? Because we see that relatively frequently with yeah. companies that we have a long tracker record with where we know they don't cover it and the patient thinks otherwise. Yeah, the first thing I would do is say you need to get it in writing. Uh, and get a copy of the policy that says what's covered, what's not covered. And and I agree with you. A lot of times it's someone who either doesn't understand the question that the patient has asked them or really doesn't know the answer to the question is just trying to give them something. And, you know, quite frankly, sometimes trying to put it back on the infertility center. Um, You know, you'll also hear things like, well, if they just put a different diagnosis, that would put it Mm -hmm. as a covered event. And I tell patients, you know, I always tell them I'm willing to put any diagnosis that was pertinent to that visit and let the insurance company figure out what the real coverage is, but I'm not going to lie to the insurance company. Exactly. Uh, I would suggest that they not do that either. So we're always going to be honest with the insurance company, but we are going to try to give them all the information they need to try to make the decision that we want them to make. But in the extreme in that circumstance, I've Uh, occasionally recommended that the billing staff have the patient in their office and get on the phone and call the third-party payer so that both the billing staff and the patient are listening to the same conversation. Hey, George, can you also add in how the deductible plays a role? Because for some patients that have really never had to use their insurance much more than just for annual checks, I don't know that a lot of patients understand about different deductible plans and how having a high deductible plan affects their coverage. Yeah, well, there's two different things. There are deductibles and there are co-pays. Uh, deductibles are something that you have to pay on a covered service. So this can be a covered service that the insurance company is ultimately responsible for, but 
if you have not paid your deductible, and those deductibles can can vary from something very low, like say $500 a year, could be very high, five or $10,000 a year. But the basic definition of the deductible is that's the amount of money you've got to pay before the insurance company becomes responsible for paying for those services. That's a little bit different from a copay. A copay would be something would be applied to every uh, service that you encountered, uh, and it would be each time you encountered that service. And you may have a $25 copay, or you may have a 20% copay on every service. So again, that's different from the deductible, but that's an important point to understand because patients need to know what are their deductibles, what are their copays, because that's really what they are responsible for before the insurance company would take over responsibility even for a covered service. In, in each of our respective parts of the country, uh, approximately what would you estimate um, how many people have diagnostic coverage versus treatment coverage? In Texas, I would say probably about 85% of people have diagnostic coverage if they have insurance. Um, and then I would say probably about 25% of people have some level of treatment coverage. What about you folks? Yeah, I, th- I think in our practice, uh, that number is probably about right. I think most patients that probably that 85 to 90% range do have at least diagnostic coverage. I think it's unusual to see a plan now that would not have that, particularly now that uh, infertility is officially recognized as a disease, which it should have been a long time ago, but at least it is now. So I think for the most part, most patients are going to have diagnostic coverage. Uh, We are seeing more and more patients that have treatment coverage. And I think the last number um, I heard from our practice is that we actually have about 35 to 40% of patients now who have coverage for IVF. Oh, wow. You have 40% of people have coverage for IVF? It's close to that, 35 to 40%, yeah. So, well, and a lot of that has to do with third-party payers too. Um, can you mention that about um, some of the the like we we have Amazon employees and they have a third-party coverage um, through Progeny, for example, that pays for a lot of yeah. Progeny has changed a lot of that because they're going into a lot of the big em- employers and um, offering to manage their uh, infertility benefit. You know, actually, uh, when people look at what the actual cost of an infertility benefit is, it's relatively low when you look at a monthly premium. So I think what they've been able to do is go in and convince the employers that, number one, it's not an expensive benefit to provide for their employees. And number two, if you're really looking at your workforce, particularly if you've got a young workforce, it's a very nice benefit to provide to make people interested in working for you and staying at your place of employment. So um, I I think that's part of it too. I mean, that's impacted our practice quite a bit over the, over the past year. So the other thing that, again, I want to go back to and make sure people understand is that you may have other medical problems that are impacting your fertility that deserve to be treated that don't necessarily fall under the infertility side of the coverage. Endometriosis is probably the biggest uh, where 
patients who have significant pain, ovarian masses, things like that, deserve to be treated. And whether that's surgical treatment or medical treatment, they deserve to be treated for the symptoms that are having related to that disease, um, whether or not they're trying to get pregnant. It, it shouldn't make a difference. Uh, the example I give to to patients a lot when they ask about that is uh, if they're having pain, I say, you know, if you had uh, appendicitis and went and had your appendix taken out, just because you're trying to get pregnant doesn't mean your appendectomy is not going to be a covered expense. A great point. Same thing with things like endometriosis, um, those sorts of things. So, you know, you, again, you've got to be your own best advocate. You've got to find out where the real coverage lies and what sort of disease processes fall into each category, whether it falls in your infertility side or it falls in your medical side. You may have mentioned this earlier, but specifically give our listeners some idea of what diagnostic treatment would, or what would be covered if you have diagnostic coverage, what would be treated with your insurance plan? Give an example, specific example of, of things that we did. If you've got diagnostic coverage, then any, um, blood work, hormone studies that you do, such as a cycle day three FSH and estradiol or AMH level, you know, that should be covered. Hysterosopingogram or saline infusion sonohistogram to evaluate your endometrial cavity and fallopian tubes uh, should be covered, uh, things like that. Uh, the other thing that's important, and we ought to mention it here as we're talking about testing, you know, uh, semen analysis should be covered. But here's where you got to not only, you got to look at both partners because sometimes um, the male and female will be on the same insurance policy. So they're going to fall under the same thing. And if diagnostic coverage is included, then the semen analysis should be, be covered. But there may be other circumstances where the male or the female have different policies and they may in fact have different coverages. One partner may have coverage for infertility, one may not. One may have diagnostic testing, one may not. So again, I keep coming back to this, but it's very important that you know what your coverage is. So in, in the case of like the worst case scenario that somebody does not have any coverage for their diagnostics, I always kind of think of the big three, your saline, your um, HSG, your semen analysis, your ovarian reserve testing. So if somebody is paying out of pocket as a general guesstimate, just because I know people are like, oh my goodness, it's fertility care. It's going to be so expensive. What kind of range do you think is probably a general range across the United States that you would um, need to spend to kind of get that basic information? You know, I, I can only go by kind of where we are, but I'm guessing we're pretty ballpark for what most people are. You know, sperm counts, depending on where you are uh, in the country, you know, 150 to 250, something like that. Sonohistogram is probably going to be seven or 800. Hysterosopingogram typically is a little bit less than that. Uh, and then day three blood work, uh, depending on where you have it done, you're probably talking about uh, two to three hundred dollars, depending on what all's done. So, you know, you probably should be able to get that basic evaluation completed for somewhere between probably 12 and 1500, maybe up to 2000 at most as a ballpark number. Um, 
The other thing I would always encourage patients to do is that if you don't have coverage, don't be, don't hesitate to ask for a cash discount. Um, you know, a lot of the costs that physicians encounter in their practice is related to the amount it costs their practice to uh, send a claim to a third-party payer to track that claim, to appeal X percent of those claims when they're denied and things like that. If you're paying cash, it's like anywhere in business. Most people are willing to, to offer you a cash discount because the cost for providing that service is less. And you had mentioned about insurance earlier that the husband may have different coverage than the wife. So are you kind of suggesting that it might be beneficial to when November rolls around and you have a choice of insurance providers, maybe shop around a little bit and figure out what they cover and what they don't? I think that's a great idea. So, you know, when it's time to make those choices, if one or the other's policy has fertility coverage and the other one doesn't, then I would make every effort to have both partners on the policy that's going to give you the greatest benefit. One thing that I would like to kind of bring out to um, our listeners out there is also understanding that the type or brand of insurance you have, whether it's Blue Cross Blue Shield or Humana or Aetna or whatever you may have, that that actually doesn't really make a huge difference. What the huge difference is, is what your employer signs has an option for you. Um, you know, the, the actual brand is more like the bow on the package. It's not the actual contents. And so, um, you know, sometimes patients are like, oh, well, I've got great insurance because I have blank type of insurance. And it's like, that really doesn't mean anything. What, what we got to know is what's the stuffing inside of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point because every big company is going to have hundreds of different policies because they're going out selling those policies to em employers. And it's really the employer that is making the decision about what's going to be in that coverage, which is another point that we ought to make is that if you're having issues with your insurance and you've got specific questions about coverage, one of the best places to go is to your human resources department uh, mm -hmm. and ask them because the human resources department may actually have meant for something to be covered, but somehow it didn't get translated to the insurance company to have that in the package. Or your human resources uh, person may not realize that this is even an issue and bringing that issue up may make them more likely to look at that when they're uh, renewing that policy and, and making sure that they get some sort of coverage in there. Um, the other thing to remember is that sometimes the policy, even though it's got a name on it from an insurance company, they're really only acting as a third-party administrator. It's really a, a large self-insured employer that the insurance company is just managing that benefit for and paying those claims. In that circumstance, you certainly have a little bit more leeway talking to your human resources person about getting the benefits that you think would be advantageous for you and and the other uh, employees within that company that, that could benefit from that too. Remember, 15% uh, of the population is infertile. So if you work at a large uh, employer that's got thousands of employees, there are a lot of those employees that are infertile and, and need that benefit. So 
the more that can go talking to that HR person about getting that covered, the better off you are. So George, say you've had diagnostic testing done and say we can't figure out what the problem is. It's unexplained. And you think, okay, I want to have some treatment, but I also want to have the most cost-effective treatment that I can. What would you recommend? Well, if you truly have a completely normal evaluation, you're in that unexplained category, then I think at that point, you kind of start with the least invasive, least expensive and work your way up the ladder. So you would start with uh, ovarian stimulation and intrauterine insemination. Uh, The point I like to make to patients is when you do that, what you don't want to do is get stuck in a rut. I always tell them um, the worst thing that could happen is we turn around a year from now and we're still doing the same thing and we're wondering why it's not working. You're going to be frustrated. I'm going to be frustrated. So don't fall into the trap of insanity. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. You, you know, if we, if whatever we do, and this is true, no matter what we do in infertility, if something's going to work, it's got about a 90% chance of working in the first three to four cycles. So if it hadn't worked within those three to four cycles, it's time to do something different. Uh, and that completely agree. being getting more aggressive, um, you know, maybe moving on to in vitro fertilization, which is obviously the most expensive thing we do, but it's also the most successful thing we do. Um, you know, in the old days, um, I hate to bring that up because it tells you how old I am, but in the <laughs> early days, if we got to that point where you did the basic evaluation and um, you didn't find anything, and you did an HSG and it was normal and they weren't pregnant within three months, the next thing you did was a laparoscopy looking for endometriosis. Um, You know, you may or may not have symptoms for that, but if you don't, that could certainly still fall into that diagnostic category if you've got diagnostic coverage. Um, We don't typically do much in the way of laparoscopy in that circumstance anymore. Certainly if you have symptoms that would suggest endometriosis, that needs to be considered but without symptoms, I'd probably go to ovarian stimulation and IUI and start working my way up towards IVF. So one important area of cost in this that usually isn't considered up front is the cost of medications. Because many times the insurance companies are not going to cover the medications that are needed. There's a very specific set of, of meds that we use. And some of them are very cheap, particularly the oral medications. You can you know go and pay for those out of pocket and they're you know, maybe 50 to 100 bucks per prescription, depending on what you're getting and where you're getting it. But when you start looking at some of the other prescriptions we use, they're, they're quite expensive. And, and what would you tell patients? How do you approach that? How do you consider that? What are you thinking about in terms of total amount of money that you're going to spend on it? And how do you work with that to the best of your ability? Yeah, the, the first thing I would tell them is talk to the, the nurse at the center that you're getting treated at, either the you know, the clinical nurse or the IVF nurse, because the nurses know when there's kind of specials out there on various medications. And, you know, most of the time, the medications we use, you're going to have a couple of choices, and there's not much difference in those medications. So those nurses are going to know whether there are special uh, plans right now on a particular medication that might save you 20 or 30 or 40 percent on those medication costs if you use that specific medication. So that's the first place that I would go is to see if if there's something like that available because there almost always is. And are there other price price breaks for say military families or, or low income families that you're aware of? 
I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of specific things, but I'm sure there are. There's always things out there. Um, you know, our, our center uh, gives discounts to military families. I think a lot of fertility centers around the country do that. So again, when you're a cash paying patient, you always want to ask and take advantage of those cash discounts. Um, so I think that, you know, there are ways to, to manage your way through the infertility journey by doing this. The other thing is that most of us, you know, uh, we have what's called a flat rate at Nashville Fertility. That flat rate fee actually already has a discount built into it, and it is specifically designed for those cash-paying patients so that they don't actually have to ask for that discount. It's already there for them. One thing I'd like you to maybe comment on for our listeners is um, – for those patients who have a fertility benefit, oftentimes there's a out-of-pocket or there, there's there's a maximum to that benefit, whether it's 10000 15000 25000 whatever it may be. And um, oftentimes, if people are not careful, they can eat up a lot of their fertility benefit by using that fertility benefit for their medications. Can you understand... Can, can you explain to our, our listeners how that happens? Because they're like, why is this costing this? But if I go to this pharmacy, it costs that. Right. And that's, again, that's where you've got to continue to be your own best advocate and look at everything that's going on. That can also happen with lab work. So let's say you're a, a patient and you've got a, a $5,000 lifetime max. That's a pretty low lifetime max for your fertility benefit. But you know, we do occasionally see those. If you're not careful, you may eat that whole benefit up by doing, for instance, one test because it goes to the third-party payer and gets paid by them and eats that whole benefit up or the medication eats it up, as you said. Um, that's why you want to look and see when you're in that circumstance what would the cost of this service or this medication be if I paid cash and then used my benefit for something else? And again, that's where you've got to be your own advocate. Look at those things because let's say you can do a test that has a cash price of $250, but if it were to get billed to the third-party payer, maybe much higher than that. It may be up into the thousands, and there's some of those out there. Um, they could eat up your whole lifetime maximum of your fertility benefit with one test, whereas if you just paid their $250 cash price and saved the benefit for, say, your IVF cycle, then you're much better off in that regard. So it's always best to look at every option out there and, and plan on how those options are going to best be utilized to benefit you. So how does age play a role in this, George? You know, when you're looking, trying to look at what's the quickest route to pregnancy for me, what's the most cost effective? In, is there a difference between what you'd recommend for a younger patient in her 20s versus a patient in her mid to late 30s? Yes, yeah, certainly think there would be, particularly if that patient either young or old, has evidence of diminished ovarian reserve, you're probably going to be much more aggressive with that patient. Um, if you choose to do something less aggressive like ovarian stimulation and IUI, you really want to limit the amount of time you're doing that because you don't have the luxury of time. So typically, though, in that circumstance, you're probably going to move to in vitro fertilization 
much quicker. The other thing that patients sometimes will do, and this is another one of those categories where I hate to uh, let the insurance determine how you treat patients, but you know, occasionally patients will have coverage. They'll get towards the end of the year and they're worried they're going to lose that benefit when their company picks the policy for the next year. And so you are looking at, you know, doing IVF versus IUI, and they may say, you know what, I don't know whether I'm going to have this coverage in January or February, and it's October right now. I'm going to go ahead and do IVF because I've got the coverage now. If I have to come back, if I don't get pregnant and come back and do IUI, I'll do that after the first of the year when I can pay for it myself. So, you know, you always hate to have that influence your decisions, but sometimes it can. So, George, what, how, what would you sum up our whole discussion today? What would be your words of wisdom for patients in regards to cost of fertility services? Yeah, my words of wisdom are the same thing I've said multiple times. So you got to be your own best advocate. you got to know exactly what your coverage is. You've got to know which bucket your disease processes are falling into, whether they're falling into the infertility bucket or actually a medical or surgical bucket because there's something else going on. But um, you've always got to be on the lookout. Uh, look at what your insurance company does even after the claims are filed. Make sure they're processing them appropriately because even they will make mistakes on how they process things. So, um, you know, nobody's going to look after you like you can look after you. And you just got to educate yourself, ask questions, and don't be afraid. If you get in the situation where you find out you don't have coverage, don't be afraid to ask for those cash discounts. Well, George, thanks so much for your words of wisdom. I know this has been really helpful for a lot of our listeners. Um, And to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us in um, in our respective clinics or submit any specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. We look forward to seeing you all real soon. Bye, guys. Bye.